excellent, okay. So we're now going to start with the four o'clock part of the program. And we're still under discussion, suttas or guided meditation. I'm going to do a sutta today. I mentioned this yesterday, the Anapanasati Sutta. And uh, if anybody wants to check it afterwards, I did have make one copy. If anybody wants to have a look at this while I'm talking or afterwards to check it, I will leave it here for you. The Anapanasati Sutta. No, I, I, the one I had today. Oh, did you photocopy some? Oh, no. Just one copy? One copy. Yeah. You left? Yeah, I, I picked it up and it's now here. Yeah. We left it there on the table. Yeah, and I picked it up and it's now here. Oh. It's been transported. Oh, okay, great, excellent. So if you haven't taken copies on your phone, there's always this one here. But there's one part of it which I did not include, and that is the introduction. Are you ready to go? Okay. This is, sometimes, where did the Anapanasati Sutta come from? And there is one little story, it's in the monk's Vinaya, which shows something about its origin. So I'll read this out for you. It just gives a little different taste the monastic life, and also the meditation. This is from the Vinaya Pitaka. At one time, the Buddha, the master, was staying at Vaisali in the hall with the peaked roof in the great wood. At that time, the Buddha taught in many ways to the monks on the subject of unattractiveness. That's the Asupa meditation. He spoke in praise of unattractiveness. He spoke in praise of developing the perception of unattractiveness. He spoke thus and thus. He spoke in many ways in praise of the attainment of unattractiveness. Then the master addressed the monks. And for Venerable Chanda here, he never addressed the nuns on this. There's a good reason why. (laughs) You'll soon find out. Monks, said the Buddha, I wish to go into solitary retreat for half a month. No one is to approach me except the one who brings me alms food. That's what we we do these days. Then the monks thought the master has talked in many ways on the subject of unattractiveness and they dwelt intent upon the practice of developing the perception of unattractiveness and its many different aspects. As a consequence, they became troubled by their own bodies, ashamed of them, loathing them, just as a young woman or man, fond of adornments and with her head washed, would be ashamed, humiliated and disgusted if the carcass of a snake, a dog or a man were hung around their neck. Just so, those monks were troubled by their own bodies, ashamed of them and loathed them. And they took their own lives, took the lives of one another 
and they approach Megalandica, a sham recluse, the recluse look-alike, and said, friend, please kill us. This bold and robe will be yours. Then Megalandica hired for a bold and robe, killed a number of monks. He then took his blood-stained knife to the river Wagumuda, and while he was washing it, he became anxious and remorseful. Indeed, it is a loss for me. It's no gain. Indeed, it is badly gained by me, not well gained. I have made much demerit, because I have killed monks who are virtuous and of good conduct. Then a certain heavenly being of Mara's retinue, walking across the water, said to Migalandika, Well done, superior mine. It's a gain for you. It is well gained. You have made much merit because you bring those across who have not yet crossed. Then Migalandika, it's obvious that you know, he wasn't the most intelligent of people, thought, so it seems it is a gain for me, that it is well gained by me, that I have made much merit by bringing those across who have not yet crossed. He then went from dwelling to dwelling, from dormitory to dormitory, and said, who has not yet crossed? Whom do I bring across? And those monks who were not free from desire became fearful and terrified, with their hair standing on end. And I can never figure that out when you're supposed to have a bald head. <laughs> but not so those who were free from desire. Then Megalandica killed a monk on a single day. He killed two monks on a single day. He killed three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. On a single day he killed even six, up to sixty monks. At the end of the half month, the master arose from seclusion and addressed Venerable Ananda. Ananda, why is the Sangha of monks so diminished? <laughs> and that's traditionally, from when I come off my two-week, 15-day retreat, when I come into the main hall to see the monks, I say, I'm glad you're all here. <laughs> He was so diminished. And then Ananda replied, It is because the Master talked to the monks in many ways on the subject of unattractiveness. He spoke in praise of unattractiveness, in praise of developing the perception of unattractiveness, and in many ways in praise of the attainment of unattractiveness. And Master, those monks thought, the Master's taught in so many ways of the subject of unattractiveness, and so they dwelt intent upon the practice of developing the perception of unattractiveness in its many different aspects. As a consequence, they became troubled by their own bodies, ashamed of them, loathing them, just as a young woman or man, fond of adornments and with head washed, would be ashamed, humiliated and disgusted if the carcass of a snake, a dog or a man were hung around their neck. Just so these monks were troubled by their own bodies, ashamed of them, loathing them. And they took their own lives, took the lives of each other, and they approached Megalandica, the recluse look-alike, and said, Friend, please kill us. The bowl and roll will be yours. Then Master hired for a bowl and a robe, Megalandica killed up to 60 monks a day. So Ananda then asked, Master, please give another meditation instruction for the Sangha of monks to be established in final knowledge. So that was one of the problems with what we call the super meditation practices. 
Welcome Ananda, call together in the assembly hall all the monks that dwell near Wusali. Yes, Master, he said, and when he had done so, he approached the Master of the Buddha and said, Master, the Sangha of monks is assembled, please do what you think is appropriate. Then the Master went to the assembly hall, sat down on the prepared seat and said, Monks, the stillness by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and sublime. An exalted state of happiness, and it stops and settles bad, unwholesome qualities on the spot, whenever they arise. Just as a big storm, when it arises out of season in the last month of the hot weather, stops and settles the dust and dirt in the atmosphere, even so the stillness, by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and sublime, an exalted state of happiness and it stops and settles bad unwholesome qualities on the spot whenever they arise. And how is the stillness by mindfulness, mindfulness of being developed and cultivated in this way? And that's what we're back now about to explain. So that was an introduction. I'm not sure how many of you have heard that before, because it's in the monks Vinaya, and I'm not quite sure how much of that is sort of exaggerated, but certainly we all agree that probably did happen. So some of the meditations, that's why we never teach the loathsomeness of breathing here, because I don't want to go to jail for encouraging murder or whatever. Although I do know that jail, because I've been visiting people in jail many, many times, it's actually quite, it's not a bad place, jails in Australia. You have lots of peace and quiet, you can stay in your cell, you get good meals, and you don't get bothered by anybody. It's a wonderful place to go and retreat. <laughs> but anyway, there's some bad sides to that as well. So that was one of the things which, you know, the monks, because that's part of the Vinaya rules about you know, not killing each other, not uh, doing suicide, that, you know, we know from our, our study of the monastic rules. And so it was an interesting time when, when you focus on some types of meditation. Your super meditation is wonderful if you know not to do it too much, not to get too negative because of it. We practice that so that as monks, you know, we can lessen any lust or desire. If you are uh, bhikkhunis, you can see that uh, that will lessen lust and desires as well. And, but we don't, don't do it too much. I always remember just the way I used to do a super meditation as a young monk in Thailand. Whenever I saw a beautiful young lady come into the monastery, and I was young, I still had the hormones raging through my body, I'd look for a pimple on her somewhere. Some defect. Because for me, the tendency was, was always to look at the beautiful and to see that and just ignore the other side of a human being. You know, the, the faults and defects. And when I did start to see the faults and defects, it take away all the idea of desire and ownership. And that sort of you know, kept me you know, a happy little monk for a long time. In all those years in Thailand, I never saw a perfect woman. Yeah. Instead, I saw human beings. I looked in the mirror myself and saw my imperfections as well. So anyway, that was just a way of 
not practicing the super meditation to the point that you do these violent acts or ask somebody else to do those violent acts for you. But it gives it just to lessen the lust and the desire of our young people. And even when I was uh, had food, and sometimes you had delicious food. And so in order to stop me eating too much in those days, I would look at that food in my bowl. Some of it was just very delicious. And I'd look at it and think, well, you know, I process it through my guts. And what comes out, as well as the energy, was what comes out the other end, you know, is this brown, disgusting stuff. That doesn't come from nowhere. That must be in the food somewhere. So, this is true. So I looked at anything which was delicious in my bowl, and I imagined that somewhere in there, you know, was the the feces and the urine. It can't come from anywhere else. And so that took away a lot of the desire for food when it was delightful, so I didn't need to eat so much. So just learning how to use those types of practices so you can overcome your lust and your desires and balance your life. But they were taking it too far. And so when the, with the Buddha away, that it caused a little bit of a catastrophe. And I say we never mentioned the nuns there because the nuns were much wiser than that. Is that true? <laughs> okay. So this is the Anapana Sati. This is Majjhimunikaya 118. And there's a couple of important points here. And I have, uh, this is my translation, and my translation over here is based on something which I learned from Professor Warder. And he was saying, and it's a very accurate point, the unit of language is not a word, but a sentence. So you should never translate word for word, but translate phrase by phrase, or sentence by sentence. Because if you translate word by word, you get these silly translations which confuse people. When it rains very heavily, you translate it, it rained cats and dogs. In all the years I've seen rain, I've never seen any cats fall out of the sky or dogs fall out of the sky. It's just an idiom. And we soon understand what these words mean when we see them repeated again and again and again. We understand them by their context. It's very clear what they mean. So instead of doing word-for-word translations, which makes these suttas quite boring, when so many words are repeated and we don't really get the meaning. So anyway, you'll soon find this out. So, Anapanasati Sutta. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it completes the four focuses of mindfulness, the four satipatthana. When the four focuses of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they complete the seven enlightenment factors. When the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they complete true knowledge and deliverance, awakening enlightenment. So, that's the intro. 
Mindfulness of breathing completes the four focuses of mindfulness. And how does mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, complete the four focuses of mindfulness? And this is uh, what I have in italics here for those who photographed it. The four focuses of mindfulness lead in one direction only. This is from the Satipatthana Sutta. And sometimes that that translation, the four focus of mindfulness lead in one direction only, the word in Pali for anybody who's interested is ekayana. And ekayana does not mean just the one and only path. It does actually mean what Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, translated. It leads in one direction only. It can't go another direction. To the purification of beings, to going beyond sadness and crying, sometimes they call lamentation. How many of you who know good English ever say, oh, I saw them la- lamenting today? They call it crying. So, you know, just speak proper English. And dis- to the disappearance of physical and mental suffering, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. What are the four? These are the um, four focuses of mindfulness. One, I know sometimes when I did these translate, translations, I actually put numbers on there. The four focuses, one, two, three, and four. Why not, for goodness sake? Because that makes it much easier to find where you are in these lists. One, having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of the body energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of experience, Vedana, sometimes it's translated as feeling. I think that's not an accurate translation. It's your bare experience. Energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of the mind, the jitta, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of mind objects, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing and mindful. And the five hindrances, I mentioned them this morning and I think even uh, last night. The five hindrances are what block your samadhi, your stillness, and what stop you seeing clearly. And that's one of the reasons why you may legitimately say the purpose of meditation is to weaken, to know the five hindrances, to weaken them until they are so disappeared that you can see clearly what is happening. Not what you want to see, not what you want to think, not what you want to believe, but what is actually true. Those five hindrances are what distort your perceptions. And if you know that Satipatthana, sometimes the common translation would be having uh, abandoned grief and covetousness for the world. And sometimes when I looked at that, I thought, what on earth does that mean? 
And fortunately, as I said, when I learned Pali as a monk, that was my job, profession as a monk, and I knew I was going to be a monk for a long time, as I said. So it was worth my while just spending a few hours learning Pali. And then what happened, this is a very good example of the benefits, then I started reading some of the suttas in the original Pali, and this was from the Anguttara Inikai, one of the great sections of suttas. And I saw these same words, you know, which they translate as having uh, abandoned grief and covetousness for the world. The words are alokya bija domanasang. And those words, alokya bija and domanasang, I saw many times as alternatives for the first two hindrances. The first hindrance, for those of you who know, is called karma chanda. But in the Anguttara Nikaya, there's a synonym, and they call it Lokaya Bija instead. And Dhammanasang, there's a couple of suttas where Dhammanasang is used as an alternative, a synonym for the second hindrance of Vayapada. And so, then I looked at the commentaries to the two Satipatthana suttas, one in the Dika Nikaya, one in the Majjhima Nikaya, and in those two commentaries, it says exactly what I said. That Lokaya Bija refers to the first hindrance, Dhammanasang to the second hindrance, and the first two refer to all five. And that makes so much sense. If you are going to get wisdom and see things clearly, anything which distorts your thoughts, your sights, you know, your, your hearing, Anything which distorts that, you tend to see what you want to see, and you block out what you don't want to. It doesn't even come to your awareness, which is one of the reasons why, in order to uh, see clearly, we have to restrain and weaken these five hindrances. And when you haven't restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of the body, aware of experience, aware of the mind, aware of mind objects, but also knowing the purpose of what you are doing. With awareness, what are you doing that for? That's called Sampajanya. And many times you know, people have criticized, and you can criticize it quite rightly. Sometimes people teaching mindfulness to say US Marines so, so that they can shoot accurately. It will increase your ability to focus and shoot accurately. But that's not the purpose of learning meditation or learning mindfulness. So you're aware of what you are doing, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. So anyway, that's a little bit of adding some extra information here. Uh, I know that you said I can just talk, but any questions about that so far? If you'd like to you know, put your hand up to ask a question about what we're talking about, I find that much more stimulating. Yes? These five hindrances, can you explain again the five hindrances? The first of them is, they sometimes call it karma chanda. Karma refers to the desire for, the, in the, for happiness, for pleasure, in the five sense world, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, 
and physical touch. It's wanting something in those areas. It should be noted it does not refer to the wanting of the pleasures of the mind. That is a totally different category taught by the Buddha. And Vyapada uh, is the not wanting something. Sort of the ill will, but ill will doesn't really uh, translate it properly. It means something, I don't want that. It repels you. And after ill will we have the sloth and torpor. And again, it's not very helpful translations, but it means that the dullness, the weakness of the body, the tiredness of the body, and the dullness of the mind. And the other two, the next uh, of the five hindrances, is restlessness and remorse. In other words, that restlessness means we, we, we can't stop thinking. Yeah? I can see why if there's sloth and torpor, there's also restlessness. But what has remorse got to do with it? It seems ah, like an odd one. It's an odd one, but it's what the word actually means. And it means that so many people spend a lot of time thinking about what they've done and it's regretting it, living too much in the past. And because of that, instead of the Buddhist way of dealing with any bad things which you've done or unskillful things you've done, is to acknowledge it, not to hide it and to think, oh, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that. You have done that. Stop wasting your time. Acknowledging it, acknowledge it, learn, for, learn for, uh, forgive it, in other words, no punishment, and then learn from it. It just seems a bit odd that it's tied to restlessness, and if remorse were there, why not anxiety about the future being there? Anxiety about the future not being there, that would be more like the restlessness. Because oh. often we, when you are restless, what do you do? What do you think about? Where do you go? Looking for something in the future. It's also tied with the wanting for something in the future, the ill will is about something which had happened in the past. But the main two of those is the wanting and the not wanting. And because we spend a lot of time being restless, I don't want to be here, I want to be somewhere else. And that causes the tiredness of the mind, it causes the sloth and torpor. So you find, how do you overcome the restlessness Just give some more kindness to your mind. If you're happy to be here, you don't want to leave. You've been one day in Jhana Grove now, are you happy here? If you're not happy, you just call a taxi and go somewhere else. That's like the restlessness in a coarse way. If you're happy sitting here, and then you won't want to leave. If you're happy with my talk, my explanation so far, then you want to hear more. It gives you the stillness, the stability. And so the main two are those first two. The karma chanda, the wanting, and the, the not wanting, to call it, put it very simply. When those two disappear, sloth and torpor takes a while to disappear because it takes a while to get your energies back. 
And because we're talking about this, I'd, please excuse me if I take too much time on this, but I think it's important. The sloth and torpor, for many years in Thailand, as a young monk, I was one of the leaders in sloth and torpor. In the morning, we'd get up at three o'clock, and we'd always you know, go to the hall to meditate. And I was always nodding. Sometimes I put forth a lot of effort to get my back straight, and then eventually I'd nod again. <laughs> Sometimes we used to do these little tricks. We get a matchbox. We didn't have many things in these monasteries. A matchbox with the matches in the tray. Take the cover off and put it on your head. Just with a, a matchbox full of matches, but no cover on it. Because when you nodded, you could hear the matchbox, uh, the matches fall on the floor. So you knew you were sleepy. When I did that, this is it's a funny story, but it's real, it's true. You put it on your head, just with the matches in the tray, with no cover on. And after a couple of days, I could sit there and the matchbox would never fall off. And I thought I'd defeated Sloth and Torpor. And then one of the senior monks took me aside and said, we were watching you when you were meditating. The reason why the matchbox wasn't falling off, well, you were nodding, you were nodding like this. The defilements can be very, very tricky. But then what happened, you're always willing to challenge and to try new things out and to see what works and what doesn't work. And I had to go to Bangkok to do my visa. And where we uh, had uh, could stay was in one of these temples and this temple had just built a new accommodation block for visiting monks, which we could use. And so I had, number one, a good meal with the arms round in Bangkok. And then I had a good sleep in this new accommodation block with no mosquitoes. And in the morning we found there was a room which had an air conditioner in it which we had got permission to use before our arm was round. And we could turn the air con on. And sitting meditation in that room, I could sit for a couple of hours with no sloth and torpor at all. Absolutely none. And you know the reason why? I was born in London. I was not used to, to the hot weather in the jungles of Thailand. It's not just hot, it's humid, lots of mosquitoes, and very uncomfortable. And sitting with an aircon, oh, she's just like being in London. And I had good food, and I wasn't sleep deprived. And I realized my sloth and torpor was just physical, caused by not sleeping enough. We were, you know, we'd stay up to about nine, ten o'clock at night. We always had to get up at three o'clock in the morning. And I hadn't slept enough. That's why you're tired. It's physical. And just so hot and oppressive and really physically uncomfortable. I changed all of that just because you could in Bangkok and had a wonderful time meditating. And that is one of the reasons why, I've said this before and I repeat it, why... 
Jhana Grove here. I've designed it. I was, we had an architect, but we sacked him when the builder came. Honestly. And so that we could get a place which was comfortable for each one of you. Even having en-suites. How many retreat centres do you know have en-suites? People actually, the community, we can't afford this. It doesn't matter. We'll get there somehow. And of course we did. And you know what it's like when you can go into your room, you have an ensuite there. You can go to the toilet whenever you need. And I encourage you, your room is very comfortable. So you can meditate in there if you wish. You don't have to meditate here. But please be quiet for your neighbours, because they can be meditating at any time. And when they do meditate in there, you know, the ensuite is right next door, you can always get yourself a glass of water any old time. And it's much more comfortable for you, I hope. And that comfort will take away a lot of the sloth and torpor, and a lot of the fighting which causes the restlessness. And you can be at peace physically. So that's one of the reasons why we have those. If I could do more, if I could get an aircon for each one of you, every room. But I don't think there's enough power in the cables for that. So anyway, now we get to the, the Anapadasati Sutta. <laughs> now you've heard this before, so listen to this translation. When the in-breath and out-breath are long, and you are aware they are long. So, number one, when the in-breath and out-breath are long, and you are aware that they are long. When the in-breath and out-breath are short, and you are aware that they are short. When you learn to experience the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. When you learn to calm the breath as you breathe in and out. On those occasions, you are mindful of the body, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. Now, I'm sure you are aware, for those of you who heard the mindfulness of the breath before, they explain that you breathe in and you are aware that the in-breath is long and you breathe out and you're aware that the out-breath is long. You breathe in, you're allowed, you know the in-breath is short. You breathe out and you're aware that the in-breath or the out-breath is short. Even I get confused with you know, what was first, what was second. It's just way too complex, word-for-word translation. And instead you just say, when the in-breath and out-breath are long, you're aware that they are long. There's a problem with that. When I started meditating, I was asking, now, how short is short? How long is long? Because when I would meditate, it was somewhere in between. And they didn't allow that. They never said what should happen when your in-breath is neither long nor short, but just kind of average. And so what that meant was, I'm trying to understand what the Buddha was saying here. You don't have to breathe in a short breath if that's uncomfortable. You don't have to breathe in a long breath. You just know. Your breath, is it long, very long, medium, 
medium long or medium short or short or very short. It's just a way of encouraging your awareness by giving it something more to be aware of when you start watching your breathing. So you don't have to follow it exactly how the Buddha said here, but please follow it how he meant. You may have come across many traditions and they don't tell you to watch a short or a long or a medium or whatever breath, but they ask you maybe to use like a word going along with the breath. Because in northeast Thailand, many of those monks would use the word butho, breathing in, bud, breathing out, tone. Breathing in, bud, breathing out, tone. Butho, butho. As I'm breathing in and out. That did not work for, first of all, for me, or for many other Westerners. I don't know how much it works for Singaporeans either. Because people in that part of Thailand, they were brought up with Buddhism. And even the word Buddha was just almost like a magical word. It had power to them. So that never worked that well, especially for Australians. So over here, instead of using the word Buddha, I ask people to you know, breathe in, like peace. Or even if you are sick, breathe in health. Breathe in energy. Just choose one word or one concept. But don't just say the word. Think what health is for you. Even visualize it. It's breathing in peace. You know, for some people, the symbol of peace you know, was like a, a dove. Imagine a white dove coming in with your breath into your mind. Peace. Because when you can imagine it and give it much more than just a word, you find that it has more power to actually um, allow you to be with your breathing. And breathe out. Let go of pain, uh, boredom, or whatever it is that is causing you uh, some problems. So as the breath goes out, you can imagine, say, um, tiredness just going out with your breath, like it's riding on an aircraft as you breathe out. And those become much more useful ways of meditating. Not just an old mantra which Ajahn Brahm uses or somebody else uses, but you make up your own, breathing in peace, breathing out, let go. Breathing in peace, breathe out, let go. And it makes the meditation interesting and engaging. And if you can imagine that, peace coming in with every breath, and say tension or headache going out with every breath, you find that you do become much more aware and much more peaceful, and the mind becomes more delightful. And of course, the third one here, this is the first four stages. In breath and out, breath are long or short. You're aware of what they are. And you experience the whole of the breath. Now there are, I just sometimes, no, I give up arguing. I just, I'm a well-known meditation teacher now, so I don't need to argue anymore. 
we have the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. Some people translate it word for word. The whole body of, you know, the whole of your body as you breathe in and out. Sabakaya patisangwedi. You experience the whole body. And this again is, should be quite obvious. And I'll make it obvious from what the Buddha said in a few moments. Because the word body has many meanings in Pali and even in English. We have a body of troops. We have a body of evidence. Even they call another body of Dhamma, Dhammakaya. There's so many usage of the word kaya, which doesn't mean a physical body. And the idea of in this state of meditation, even just the third stage of Anapanasati, to have the idea that you're aware of your body while you just try to watch the breath. It doesn't say the body, the whole of the body. Never makes any sense. I've never been aware of my toes when I'm doing breath meditation. I've never been aware of my left ear, nor the whole of the body. Trying to do that doesn't make any sense. And it shouldn't make any sense, because that's not what the Buddha meant. Uh, I will just go a little bit forward over here. Uh, In and out breathing is regarded by the Buddha as a body in the category of bodies. That is why on the occasion occasion that the meditator abides mindful of the body, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of purpose and mindful, experiencing the body, the whole body of breath, thus refers to the whole of the breath. And how it works, just to explain it to you, you can watch my finger, that's watching it go left and right, left and right. Now this is watching the whole of the movement of the breath. From your right, from your left. See the whole of the movement of the breath. And the whole movement of the breath is it goes the other way. Going in. And then going out. That's the whole movement of the breath. So first of all you know it as it goes in, you know it as it goes out. And it becomes quite natural as you become more focus more still, you see much more of the breath from the very beginning to the end without missing anything in the middle. That becomes the whole body of the breath, the whole of the breath. And then lastly, to be able to calm the breath. You learn to calm the breath as you breathe in and out. What instructions do you give to calm the breath? It becomes a natural process, calming your breathing. When you are still, you're not thinking too much, the body's not moving, you find that you don't need to breathe so much. Breathing is a natural process in the body. And if the body needs more oxygen to metabolize, it will demand more. It's not up to you. But as you sit more and more still, more and more content, you don't need so much oxygen because your body, and your brain especially, does not need to metabolize so fast. That is how 
you calm the breath. And it happens quite naturally. You see the whole body of the breath and it gets calmer and more peaceful. Now at this stage, you have to be aware that the biggest hindrance could be sloth and torpor. And the reason why is because what you're watching is not that exciting. And the body and the mind sometimes become bored. And when it becomes bored, you either you know, get restless looking for something else, or it just turns off. That's one of the reasons why that the next stage of the Anapanasati is develop the joy and happiness. To see the beauty in just a very peaceful breath. You know, sometimes that people look at even yourself, how hard is it get is it to get a holiday in Singapore? To get nine or ten days off. And you're wasting it by coming to Jhana Grove. You can go to so many places. Enjoy yourself. Go to the real Club Med. Go and see the Great Wall of China. You don't need to see the Great Wall of China because you can see the Great Wall of Bodhinyana just down the road. <laughs> see Niagara Falls. You don't need to see Niagara Falls. Stand under, stand under your own shower. Same thing, it's just different size. <laughs> but people get kind of surprised that you deliberately even pay for it to come on a nine-day retreat where you don't get much choice of food and many of you, I hope, are keeping those eight precepts not eating in the afternoon. Not a proper bed, but sleeping on the floor sometimes. Why do people do that? <laughs> a lot of times people in the world don't know the joy of simplicity and peace. But after a while you discover that. That's one of your great discoveries. You're meditating here. Oh, it feels so delightful. Much more delightful than if you go, I don't know where you would like to go in life, your dream holiday. This is your dream holiday. Peace, stillness. The body gets so joyful. You start to see a world in the grain and sand and stuff. Anyway, let's carry on, otherwise I'll be going all night. So those are the first four stages, Radha So the next four stages, when you learn to experience joy, pity as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience pleasure, sukha as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience the mental formation, chitta-sankara, of piti sukha, the two together as you breathe in and out. When you learn to calm this mental formation as you breathe in and out. On those occasions you are mindful of experience, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. For being mindful of the pleasure associated with this stage of breath meditation is being mindful of experience. That is why on that occasion a meditator abides mindful of experience having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful, you fulfilled the second of the Satipatthana. Now the important point there is you learn to experience joy and pleasure as you're breathing in and out. Is the breath 
beautiful? How many times have you breathed in and out in your life? How many times have you recognised that the breath is really delightful? Very rare. Because <laughs> it's not the breath which is delightful. And this was the uh, information given by the Buddha, the mental formation of... That creates the beauty on the breath. It's just how the mind sees the breath, how your mind sees jhana growth, how your mind sees the trees when you have a cup of tea and look out onto the valley. How your mind sees those things creates its beauty and delight. And that is one of the reasons why when you are peaceful and your mind becomes strong and it's not distracted, you can see this bamboo floor and it's absolutely gorgeous. I've seen many of you taking photographs of all things, but how many of you have taken a photograph of the piece of bamboo floor right in front of you? Why? If you see how beautiful it is and your mind notices that, then it's worth taking a photograph of. But the problem with photographs is the beauty you see now can never be captured in the camera. There's something else. My first meditation retreat I did as a student over in Cambridge, we were allowed to do a, uh, an hour's walk every morning. It's an old story, but it, it's to the point. And I went to the Cambridge Botanical Gardens. This was the area, I was a student there. I was supposed to go for a walk. But I only got to the entrance. And at the entrance was this clump of bamboo. I don't know if you know the town of Cambridge in UK. And it's very flat, very windy and cold. I don't know what bamboo was doing in the botanical gardens of Cambridge. But nevertheless, when I went there the first day, that bamboo was absolutely gorgeous. And I couldn't go past it. I was just standing there, staring like I was on some sort of drug. Just with a big smile on my face, enjoying you know, the, the slender way that bamboo bends under its weight. It's a beautiful curve. And just the way that the leaves aren't really fat and round. They're, they're very slender. The whole thing was just so refined. And I had enough presence of mind to notice there was a bench close by. And I sat down on that bench. Because if somebody had spotted me, standing there, your mouth wide open, staring at a clump of bamboo, they would have called the ambulance. <laughs> I never took drugs when I was a, a student there. I avoided those, but you know, that was very common in those days, the 60s and early 70s. So I was just staring as if I was high on something. So I sat down instead, that was more acceptable. Eight of those nine days, I went to the same spot. Instead of exercise, I just sat down, blitzing out on, the, on a clump of bamboo. I'd never got bored at all. And then what happened? At the end of the retreat, 
Now then I went back to university and the social life and everything, as well as the studies. And then I had a free afternoon and I thought I'd go and see the most beautiful club of bamboo in the world. I got on my bicycle and pedalled to the botanical gardens. And I was shocked. The bamboo was there, but the beauty had gone. I saw this desiccated, dry uh, piece of bamboo, which should never have been planted in a town like Cambridge. It was a, a tree or plant or whatever you might call it in the wrong place. And that shocked me because I couldn't see any beauty in there anymore. And I asked myself, where did that beauty come from? That beauty came from my meditation. It was a chitta sankara, a mental sankara. Mine was so powerful that you could see that clump of bamboo and it looked gorgeous. Now the beauty had gone. Same bamboo, but the mind was not open enough to see it. So the experiences like that just show you what this meditation can do. And here it is, when you learn to experience the joy and the pleasure as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience it as a mental formation as you breathe in and out, it's not in the breath, it's in the way the mind sees the breath. On those occasional mindfulness experience. Number three, and I do uh, purposely um, linger on these first two uh, tetrads, they call it, four stages of breath meditation, because these are probably the most important. What happens next happens naturally at some times, but this becomes a very powerful type of meditation. When you learn to experience the chitta as you breathe in and out, the jitta is called a mind. But also the jitta has another meaning in Pali, which is beautiful, delightful. And it was given as a name to a Thai prince a long time ago, Prince Chitra, that's a Sanskrit form of chitta. It's something beautiful. And when he invaded uh, north of Malaysia, they actually gave the name of a town based on him, the Chitra, the town in North Malaysia. But it also means the jitta, the mind. Beautiful. When you learn to, exp- oh, sorry, when you learn to experience this jitta, this mind inside of you, as you breathe in and out, when you learn to brighten the mind, literally bring joy to the jitta as you breathe in and out, when you learn to settle the nimitta, samadhaṃ, samadhi it, as you breathe in and out, and when you learn to enter jhana, liberate the jitta as you breathe in and out. On those occasions you are mindful of the jitta, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. I do not say there is the development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is dull, who is not fully aware. That is why on that occasion meditator abides mindful of the mind, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. So this nimitta stuff which I teach a lot about. This is 
how you experience the citta. This is what it, it is experienced as. I say like usually a light in the mind. And I say that because that's the most common form of nimitta. It's not seeing it through your eyes. The sense of sight is turned off. It's not working. And I say sight as an image simply because that is the dominant sense of most human beings. Even when we try and identify who you are, we have your photograph on your passports. You have your facial ID, how you look like. We don't, we can just analyze the sound of your voice. We can try and notice your smell. Dogs will know who you are, but to me, you all sound, you all smell the same. <laughs> My nose is not dominant anymore. That's one of the reasons why your dominant sense is probably how you would experience these jitter. It's not sensed. Some person once told me that when they got into a deep meditation, they heard these sounds like music in the hall. Not ordinary music. They sometimes call it like heavenly music because they were professional musicians. They'd spent so much of their life listening that their audio part of their brain was almost the dominant sense which they had. And that's one of the reasons why when the mind came up, everyone sees the same thing, the jitter. It's how we interpret it, how we perceive it. Most people perceive it as a light some people perceive it as a sound. Perceive it as a physical feeling, it can be a physical feeling, but it's usually quite rare. And so, one of the points of a nimitta, if you do perceive it as a light, it's not a normal light. The yellows, the blues, the greens, whatever it is, is something you can never see with your eyes more pure, a blue deeper than any blue you've ever seen before, an orange deeper than any other orange. That's one of the standard features of nimittas. If it's yellow, if it's white, it's deeper than any other white, more pure. You've never seen a white like that in the world, but it's there in your mind. You're seeing your mind, the sixth sense. The other five senses have been restrained. You learn to settle it so it doesn't move around. And you, and you learn to brighten it. I say brighten it, that's referring to it as if it, you experience it as a, as a light or similar to, to a vision. In other words, you make it stronger, more delightful, more powerful and it becomes extremely powerful. Just in my own practice, I was a more of a visual person, so I always saw these things as you know, similar to what you see with your eyes, even though I knew my eyes were, were not working at all. You know, some of those, those lights were incredibly bright, 
And I say this just to uh, give you some confidence that sometimes these lights can be so powerful. I remember once, and I remember sharing this with others, and a few other people had the same experience. It becomes so bright, like looking at the sun at midday in Australia. And uh, thinking, if I keep experiencing this much longer, I'll go blind. But you're not looking at the real sun. This is a mental image. You can look upon it, it can be as bright as it wants. And you never go blind, you just get blissed out. So allow it to happen. Don't get afraid, don't be a control freak. And then, the last four of the 16 stages of Anapanasati. When you learn to explore impermanence in breath meditation. Impermanence means that nothing is stable, things are liable to vanish. You learn to explore things fading away in breath meditation. When you learn to explore things ceasing in breath meditation. When you learn to explore relinquishing things in meditation, in breath meditation. On these occasions you are mindful of mind objects, the Dhamma, having restrained the five hindrances, energized fully aware of the purpose and mindfulness, mindful, having seen with wisdom the impermanence fading away cessation and relinquishment of the five hindrances, you are mindful with equanimity. That is why on that occasion you are mindful of mind objects, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose of mindful. That is how mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, comp- completes the four focuses of mindfulness. And I never say to contemplate, because contemplate means too much thinking. It's not working over old ground which has been dug so many times before. Like what they used to call gleaning. After the harvest, poor people would go into those fields to see if they can collect a few grains which were left behind. This is not doing that exploring fresh fields of understanding and knowledge. What does impermanence really mean? And one of the things which has been impermanent, faded away and ceased, was your five senses. Your body. As you go deeper into these meditations, more stuff which you thought was so permanent and your um, prized possessions, things like your will, your choice, But anyway, just the five senses and the body uh, which it uses, the five senses uses to to play and explore the world. They vanish. And when they do vanish in meditation, please do not be afraid. I can give you a money-back guarantee. I'll give you the whole Jhana Grove as a guarantee. It's not dangerous, it's beautiful and gorgeous when your five senses you can't see anything, sight is turned off, sound is turned off, smell is turned off, taste is turned off, and your body is not there, disappeared. You can't feel a thing. Someone will tap you on the shoulder, you wouldn't feel it. There's this guy, I will finish soon, please excuse me. He was old, he had migraines, 
and he was like a soldier in the British Army. And you know, he was a sergeant, not sort of an officer, but and he, as a, a sergeant, whenever he was on any exercises and he had a big migraine, he would try and find a dark place and sit in there for a few minutes. And he said the only way he could overcome his migraines was going really deep inside until his five senses vanished. And he knew that this was happening because once he was sitting in a barn and told his uh, troops to come and get him in half an hour. He didn't have any cup of tea or anything, so he just sat in a dark barn. And then the order came through the radio to move immediately. So they all got into the truck and they left him in his barn. And then halfway down the road, they said, oh, we forgot our sergeant. So they went back and he was motionless in the barn sitting. So they just picked him up and they put him in the back of the truck. And he came out of his deep sense of stillness in the truck. How do I get in here? I was in the barn. That's what it's actually like. If any of you get into a deep meditation, you can't hear anything, you can't see anything, you can't feel anything in the body, no taste or smell, and it becomes to Sunday next week, and you have to take you to the airport, don't worry. We'll check you in, we'll put you in the aircraft, and you'll wake up and say, I was in Jada Grove. <laughs> Now I'm in Singapore Airlines, flying to Singapore. <laughs> What's happened? You're perfectly safe. And it's just what happens. And you'll never, ever regret that. It's a beautiful experience. What happens in deep meditation? Now, is there any other quick question now? Because most of the questions I hope we can deal with tonight. Have you got one? I've got so many. I'm happy to give one. Okay, go on. Why six senses? I don't know actually why we have five senses in our culture. In Greek culture there was six. That it was uh, Aristotle would always talk about the six senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touch. And the sixth sense of mind he called the common sense. Because whatever you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, you can know. And that sixth sense is important. And he said it, called it the common sense, the mind. And just as a joke, I often say that the problem with Western culture, we lost our mind and abandoned our common sense. We're materialists in the philosophical meaning of that. And because of that, look, even it, I was a theoretical physicist, and the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics was stating quite clearly that you do need an observer, a mind, a knower. You do need that sixth sense to collapse the, the uh, probability function to create reality as we know it. Without the mind, without an observation. A tree falls in a forest. Literally, if there's no one there to see it, it doesn't fall. It's not straight up either. It hasn't not fallen. 
And that's just you know, what happens with you know, modern physics. You do need that sixth sense. Without that, we become far more uh, indulging with the things outside, with stuff, and don't know just how we feel about stuff, the mind inside. So that was one of the problems with our culture, I must say. Different thing, but when we don't, we look upon the mind as being some byproduct of the brain. And there's all these amazing people like the boy with no brain. And there's a few people being, being like that. But when I first heard about this, which was a Professor Lorber of Sheffield University, quite a while ago now, but he was doing some experiments just to why people have very strange shaped skulls. And does that affect, you know, your social life, your, your intelligence or whatever? And he noticed one of the students, he was a graduate student in mathematics, had a stable relationship with a nice girl. He was not normal, but more normal than the average. You know, as graduate in mathematics, a normal sort of social life, very kind. But he invited him to join the program because he had a strange shaped skull. And so he did an ECG of the boy's skull and found there was no brain. Cerebral fluid. And I remember talking about that. You know that guy I said who drove me to that retreat years ago? where the guy was, uh, had the sinus uh, problems. The guy who drove me to that retreat was a doctor. And he said at medical school in, in that's Prince Alfred College, Prince Alfred um, Medical School or whatever in Sydney, he'd seen that um, CT scan. And they did it again just to check. And I said, well, was it true there's no brain? He said, yes, no brain there. But the guy is perfectly, not even normal, but more intelligent than normal. I said, what do they do with that? And he said, you wouldn't believe just how much controversy that has created. And so, well, what happened? They just put it in the back of a filing cabinet and called it anomaly. Just too difficult to incorporate and understand. These things are weird. I was taught as a scientist, there's no such thing as anomaly. If something comes up that which challenges you know, your ideas, you have to incorporate them somewhere or you realize your ideas are not good enough. You can't just dismiss it because it's just too difficult. I like stuff like that. Now, just before I finish off, because it's 12 minutes past five, I want you just to move your head back and forward. Can you hear any sloshing sound? <laughs> if you hear things sloshing there, you've got no brain too. And you may also be an example of a person with no brain, just cerebral fluid. <laughs> That's just a joke. So anyway... If you can't hear any sloshing there, you may be dehydrated and it's time to finish off and get a cup of tea or a drink or something. So thank you for listening.
Sadu, Sadu, Sadu.